From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We're still waiting for a vaccine to be released, and someone who knows a lot about virology has some questions about the way it's being tested. He's William Hazeltine, who is a virologist. He uh, has um, taught at Harvard and is still very keenly interested in this. And and you raise some concerns about some of the vaccine testing. Uh, based on what? I'm concerned about the way the vaccines are being tested based on reading a careful reading of the protocols that they've submitted to the FDA and the FDA has accepted for both emergency youth authorization and uh, full approval of the vaccine. And what you see in those proposals is a couple of really interesting things. First of all, I think most people expect the vaccine to prevent infection. Mm -hmm. That is not a criterion for approval of these vaccines. In fact, if you read how these vaccines are being evaluated, they assume that everybody vaccinated or not will be likely to be infected. The measurement for success is in their large population. If a small number of people in the unvaccinated and an equal number of people in the vaccinated group are infected, what is the difference in the symptoms of those who are infected? That very criterion tells you that they expect everybody to be infected in both arms of the trial, vaccinated or not. So the first expectation that the vaccine will protect you from infection or detectable infection is uh, certainly not a criterion. That is an, probably is an eye-opener for most people. Now, is that different from the, the way the flu vaccine would be designed? Actually, it's the way the flu vaccine is designed. And that's the second surprise, I think, for most people. The flu vaccines are not designed to prevent infection. They're designed to prevent serious disease. So that gets to the next question. What type of disease are the trials meant to prevent? Mild disease, such as a cold, a headache, a cough, a fever, or serious symptoms that may land you up in the hospital. And the answer is, in the initial submissions, all they were expected to do is change the frequency of mild, very moderate mild uh, symptoms. That would include if you had a headache, a sniffle, and a cough, that would be enough to be included as a signal for the unvaccinated. And if there were a lower number of headaches, sniffles, and coughs Uh vaccinated, that would be a green light. Now, since that time, the FDA has modified that very slightly and said for full approval, you'll need to have at least five people in the unvaccinated group get serious disease and no people in the vaccinated group. So there is a uh, a very tiny hook onto serious disease. I would add that death is never included as an endpoint. Preventing people from getting serious disease, most people from getting serious disease, and preventing them from dying is not part of the approval process. But that would require, if they're to put that in, would require that somebody in the control group die, wouldn't it? Absolutely it would, and that happens. We know that if uh, people are infected, about uh, 1%, uh, between half a percent and 1% of people die. So if the trial is done with enough people, you will see that signal. is not being done with enough people. Uh, 
Uh, the interim approval is being done with a handful of people, maybe 25 in each arm. That's sort of an average amongst all the trials, some smaller, some bigger, uh, that are actually infected. And the final, no more than 75 people in each arm. For a vaccine that is meant to be used on a very large population of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, uh, that is a very thin uh, thread to hang an enormous vaccine program. Let me just ask you this question. What about the challenge trial being done in Britain, where apparently they're going to give somebody the vaccine or a group of people the vaccine, then deliberately expose them to the virus? Is it, wouldn't that uh, be a better standard of proof? Uh, I would say, first of all, the, the, the simple answer is no. Um, there's a more complicated answer, and I've written extensively about this. I believe it to be unethical, mm-hmm. uh, unnecessary, and uninformative. Why unethical? You're giving people a virus that may kill them. And if it doesn't kill them, may cause lifelong damage to their brain, their heart, their pancreas, uh, and their lungs. We, at this point, have no good drugs to assure that you will recover from the infection which you're deliberately given. That makes it unethical. It's unnecessary because the infection rate in the U.S. and in UK and European countries, as well as a number of other countries, is very, very high. We have unprecedented rates. We have over, I'd say, close to 100,000 people uh, diagnosed with uh, infection today, mm-hmm. every day. Every day. That's a lot of people. And in the UK and in France and in other European countries, it's very high. There's no sh- shortage of people. It's uninformative. Because by necessity, even with the the, uh, twisted ethics that are being used, they're only intending to do this trial on young, healthy people. And the vaccine is meant to be used on people old and young, healthy or not. So I believe this is a, uh, a trial that should not ever be done. And I would believe that the majority of people in public health and the majority of virologists would agree with me. So you think there need to be much more extensive trials done of a a population that has not been deliberately exposed, much more extensive than is being done now? Is that what you're saying? I believe that's the case. And that is the case for almost, in fact, almost all other viruses uh, and vaccines that have been been developed. Uh, There is a good reason that you test vaccines on very large numbers of people, both for efficacy and for safety. Uh, what we haven't talked about yet is the safety uh, parameters, um, that many of the effects of the uh, vaccine, some are short-term, but many are long-term. Uh, reinfection uh, facilitated by antibodies is one possibility, so facilitated reinfection, and increased pathogenicity of the virus. That happens with some coronavirus vaccines. It's been known uh, in primates and in cats. Uh, that the uh, antibodies can enhance uh, the disease. And there's some evidence from other coronaviruses that it may actually enhance infection. So we need to look at this, not in the short run, but over the long term as well. And so the safety trials have now been extended a little bit uh, for two months. A real safety trial would take a year or two uh, to do properly.
So you're saying that, now this is a disease that that uh, where the harm comes because of the body's response to the virus. And so you're saying by injecting these antibodies, that could actually make the the body's response worse. It can in some cases, yes. Huh. And there's evidence for some coronaviruses that happens. It's called antibody-dependent enhancement. Now, there's been no direct evidence of that in the animals that have been challenged. But you, those you can count. Uh, before you count to 100, you've exhausted the number of uh, primates just about that have been infected in vaccine trials. So at this point, um, what can people then reasonably expect from the, the first vaccines to be released? The, 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 the hope would be that this vaccine would act as a flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. And that is saying a lot because, first of all, it's saying what it does and doesn't do. The flu vaccines don't stop influenza pandemics. And uh, we know that because we've had the vaccines for many, several generations now, and they don't stop seasonal flu. I don't think we can count on any vaccine that's being developed now to stop seasonal COVID. That's the first thing. The flu vaccines moderate the disease symptoms in between 30 and 50 percent of those vaccinated. The other 50, 70 to 50 percent get just as sick as if they'd never been vaccinated. Mm. That's something else you might expect from this. And the third thing the flu vaccines don't seem to do very well is to slow down transmission. That is the number of people who are infected. And so you could expect this vaccine to behave Similarly, in other words, it wouldn't slow infection. It would moderate and pro may possibly reduce the death rate, which, of course, is uh, very good, but only in some, not in all people. The other thing that we know from flu is that you've got to quadruple the dose uh, and maybe increase it by almost 10 times if you're going to protect people to any degree that are over 70 years old, 75 years old. And in fact, there are now very potent doses of the flu vaccine that are being used, which have a partially protective effect on much older people, whereas the standard influenza uh, vaccines don't. And I think we could expect something similar uh, from these. So you put all that together and you have vaccines that, if we are successful, will have something like the flu vaccine, won't stop the pandemic. I have a collateral fear that the very notion that there's a vaccine will cause people to loosen up their behavior even more than it already is. We've seen what happened with this is happening in Europe and in America with the relaxation that people experienced over the summer, that it seemed, at least in Europe, that the infections had been moderated. They came back from their summer vacations, did not uh, follow uh, good public health procedures, and the infections have skyrocketed to levels four or five times higher than what happened last spring. And there's no end in sight at this point. Just to give you a number, if we had the rate of infection that the French now have, we would be having 250,000 people a day plus infected, 250,000 a day plus. That's the rate at which the virus is infecting people in France. We know how it can get out of control. And it's uh, rip-roaring infection here in the United States today. You know, I am in favor of vaccines in general. I'm even in favor of these vaccines. But we have to modulate our expectations and make sure that we are clear about what they will do and 
the safety procedures. Another thing we must do with these vaccines is have a long post-approval surveillance. It must be mandatory because many of the side effects don't turn up for a long time. So it can't be that this is once and done, like many other drugs that are going to be used in very large populations, none larger than this. We've got to look at the long-term potential consequences and demand that all vaccine manufacturers that receive a approval have as part of their requirement what is called phase four long-term, uh, as long as five-year surveillance to see what the efficacy and safety of these vaccines actually is. Wow. I would venture to say this is not at all what most people are expecting. Most people are expecting that once that, that virus uh, vaccine is released, that we can get back to normal. And we're looking forward to doing that certainly after Christmas at the latest. But what you're saying is even if everybody gets this vaccine, you're still going to have to mask up and protect yourself because this does not protect you from everything. It certainly is not designed to protect us from infection. And the notion that after Christmas is totally fanciful because the vaccine will not be available for most people until at least the summer and maybe later. Uh, let me add that there are a couple of other serious concerns. It looks like the FDA is not planning to inspect the facilities in which these vaccines are being produced. That is entirely anomalous with respect to any drug that I'm familiar with. I've developed drugs, got them to market, and in every single case, the FDA has had a deep, thorough inspection of our manufacturing facilities. In fact, we've had to manufacture the drug on commercial scale two or three times to demonstrate consistency and to the FDA's satisfaction that we have obeyed and followed all the requisite procedures, and in fact, that the final product is safe. That seems to be thrown out of the window. And for some of these vaccines, which are entirely new manufacturing processes that have never been done at this scale, they've been at laboratory scale or small trial scale at, 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 the, at the most, uh, is totally extraordinary, unprecedented, and very dangerous. Dr. Hazeldine, shouldn't somebody in an official position like Dr. Fauci be telling us this stuff before we embark on this? Um, you know, the people whose responsibility this lies is not on those who create the vaccines. They're on those who regulate what vaccines are allowed into the population. If you allow any drug developer to develop their drug, they are wedded to it. They have put their heart and soul into it. I can tell you, having developed drugs, you have no idea of how much work how many years of work go into it, how much, how many hours of, of and, and pain, real pain go into it. And of course, people who develop drugs, whether it's the National Institutes of Health or pharmaceutical companies, would like to see it used. And therefore, that's why we have the FDA. We have the FDA to protect us from over-enthusiastic medical researchers. I, I thoroughly endorse the energy that's being put into these vaccines. On the other hand, we have to be sure it's safe and effective. Safe first, effective second. So uh, what I'm getting from this is you feel this has definitely been rushed. 
that people's expectations need to be lowered and that the idea that we're going to get the all clear anytime soon is a fantasy. So whoever's elected president, what would they have to do to uh, to do the right thing by the American population? Well, you know, I tell you that the real irony from all of this is that it's well known by now, proven in a number of countries, how to control this infection, get it down close to zero so people can go about reopening their economies, going back to school, going to theaters, having parties, uh, hooking up with no worries. And that is done in a number of countries only through public health with no vaccine and no drug. There are a number of countries that have got the infection rate so close to zero that the only way a new virus comes in is from some other country where the virus is prevalent. That includes about one-fifth of all humanity. There is something very peculiar sociologically, regulatory, and governmentally about the West. Europe, United States, South America. You could say that something like South America and Asia can't get it under control because they're poorly regulated. You cannot say that about Europe and the United States. Certainly, we have the ability, we have the knowledge, we have the sophistication, we have the data, we have the uh, information infrastructure to do it. We haven't done it. Whereas countries like China, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, New Zealand, Australia have put this genie back in the bottle. We don't need a vaccine to do it, and a vaccine won't actually do it. You need a combination. But the best part and the strongest part of that combination is public health. Now, I have experience in both areas. I'm a fundamental research scientist uh, at Harvard doing fundamental research on cancer and AIDS. I've created many drugs, so I understand that part, in fact, vaccines. And I now, for the last 15 years, have been working on health policy. Uh, so I and public health. I've been a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health as well. And if I balance the two, which side of my brain is most urgently needed. It's the public health side, the policy side, not the virology side. Just look at what China did. They had a rip-roaring infection in Wuhan. They shut down the entire province and within a matter of two or three months, eliminated COVID from a country of 1.4 billion. Eliminated it. I have offices in Beijing and Shanghai. My people for the last three or four months have been totally free except to leave the country they have very strict restrictions on where they can go and very strict restrictions on who can come. But 650 million people traveled in Golden Week about three weeks ago and nobody got infected. Wow. But I'm guessing that you get, is, And we don't know that in the United States. We are, are our filter for what works in other countries is so blurred that I think it comes as a shock to people that in one fifth of humanity that was seriously infected, there is no infection today and no death for weeks and months. Well, I think we're told that China is massaging the figures, but you clearly don't believe that. So no, that is, that is, a, that is such propaganda. Yeah. That reminds me of my uh, youth as the Cold War, uh, where the information we got was so distorted about what was happening behind the Iron Curtain. We know, and most people know, that the Chinese are free to, their economy is booming, their exports are up, their imports are up, uh, their economy is growing. And I can tell you from direct conversations with my staff there, they are free 
as we wish we were. They're as free as we were before COVID. Okay, so lay, so lay it out for me. What would the U.S. version of that, if you were the head of the coronavirus task force, and it sounds like you could do it, what would you be telling people to do? What would you, what kind of system would you put in place? I have a plan I call um, COVID control American style. And we can't do, I think, because of our sociology and political ideologies and sense of individuality, what the Chinese did, which is to say, if anybody's exposed, they're quarantined alone or at home for 15 days. And you're going to have an app on your phone that says you can't leave your house, you can't leave your room uh, if you don't have a green code on your phone. And people will look at your phone no matter where you go to, to check that that's the case. I think we would find that far too intrusive. But there is new technology which would allow us to do almost the same thing. What we have with an infection that is so rampant today my guess is at any one time, any day, there's probably 20 million people walking around infecting others in the United States. You're not going to put all those people in their uh, homes locked down. But what you can do is very rapid antigen tests. Those are measuring the virus, or let's say very rapid virus tests. Presence for virus is enough concentration so that you're likely to be contagious. Mm -hmm. We can do those tests now in five minutes. The first thing I would do is make those, I would have a billion of those produced as fast as possible using the Defense Production Act. We have the authority to do it. We have the money to do that. That would cost less than about 50, 60 billion dollars at the very outside. Those tests could be manufactured for 50 cents each. Anybody could use them like a pregnancy test. They should be available to people at home, and they should be available to businesses and to schools. That's the first thing. Detect people who are contagious. Then what do you do? You pay them to stay home. You pay them $500 a day to stay home as a family. And you make it illegal for anybody to shut off the job if somebody is staying at home for that reason. They have to get their job back. Whether they're infected or not, if it's a wife or a husband or a parent that's living together with somebody who's scored positive, they stay at home with $500 a day. Uh, and I believe it would dramatically change the trajectory so that in three to four months, we might be where China is. Wow. So there are solutions that are compatible with what we're doing. But the federal government is doing none of that. You've seen what a mess the testing is. Yeah. I've gone through the testing procedures. Even today, they are brutal to go through, very difficult to go through. So have you floated this by anybody in authority? Uh, well, I've, I've certainly floated it by people who hope to be in authority. Ah. And I've written this uh, in a number of different uh, places. Of course, I've written this. And this is not a fanciful idea. I think it's doable. But the only one organization in the United States that can do that, and that's the federal government. States don't have the resources and they don't have the authorities necessary to do that. The federal government has already declared a state of emergency. They have the power. We have all the legislation we need through uh, BioShield and BARDA legislation that was passed way back in 2003 or even earlier to, to protect us from uh, bioweapons and other naturally emerging uh, diseases. We have the authorities under 
the uh, emergency powers to make sure that this sticks. And we have the technologies today. You know, three or four months ago, we might not have had them, but today we do. We have three or four technologies that can detect viral RNA or viral protein within a matter of five minutes, and it would be easy enough to do at home or with a little bit of assistance. We can train cadres of people to test entire families if one person was infected. Not a problem. We can teach businesses how to do that. But we, I see none of that happening. And I don't see a clear program from even the Democrats who would like to use the power of the federal government. I haven't seen a clearly articulated program that says this is what we should do. Well, I, but, can, see, I can see why. If, if Biden had proposed that before the election, I'm not sure he'd be within striking distance now. Well, why? To test people and to have them stay home with $500 a day? You don't think people would find that attractive? Well, maybe the $500 the problem is going to be the, the $500 does check that they're really infected. Yes, it's a, the $500 is a new twist, which I hadn't considered. And that's, that's certainly uh, very tempting. But talk about government interference in a country that apparently is, is, is in no mood for that at all. But, but uh, well, what, what, our choice is dying from this. Our choice is wrecking our economy again and again and again. The other thing that we haven't talked about is this concept that the current administration has um, promulgated that this infection will die out. That isn't a coronavirus any more than it's a flu virus. We've been infected by four coronaviruses for 50 or 60 years. And every year they come back and give you a cold and they give you the, the same virus will give the cold to the same person. There are studies that show that being infected one year doesn't protect you from exactly the same virus the second year. No matter what people will say about antibodies or T-cells, epidemiology tells you that these same viruses come back every year. And if you look at them individually, you'll find some people over a six-year period have been infected two, three, and sometimes four times by exactly the Well, that's why we have the therapeutics, right? You have the remdesivir and the others. So, okay, you get infected, but it's it's like taking well, a know, Tamiflu. Infected, do not put your hope in remdesivir. Remdesivir has, uh, is one of those drugs that has a bare minimum of effect. And when the WHO did a study of remdesivir in a very large population, they published the results that there was no measurable effect, huh. no measurable effect. Well, how'd the president get yeah. better then? If you do a study in a very fine, confined population, in a very tight window, you can get a very small improvement. You don't have a decrease in serious disease and you don't have a decrease in death. You have some measurement that some people don't have to stay in the hospital as long as they might otherwise have stayed. That drug has been recommended against by the World Health Organization based on a very big controlled trial. So don't put your home with that drug or any other drug that's currently available. What about the Trump drug cocktail? There are a lot of people who saw him you know, emerge from that and say, I'll have what he's having. You know, how many people recover very quickly? Most of the people that get sick and go to the hospital don't leave in a coffin. Most of them leave on their own two feet. Yeah. And Trump is one of those people. And most people can recover relatively quickly, depending how ill they are. So it depends how ill he was and how fast they recovered. But there's no evidence at all that the drugs are what are responsible for his recovery. And in fact, when you look at the best drug combinations, the same thing is true for convalescent sera. They didn't seem to uh, help people in a WHO trial. And the most you see, and I look at all these trials pretty carefully, are very marginal effects. Let's take the best effect that you see 
for somebody who's already sick. And that is no effect if you've been sick for more than three days. You've had symptoms for more than three days. That is a sniffle or a cough. No effect whatsoever. Now, there is hope that if you catch people very early, these drugs are likely to work better. That's true for the antibody drugs that are being developed. And I think it's likely to be true for new generations of antiviral drugs. But in order to catch people really early, you have to do what I was saying earlier, have a massive early screening program. Now, you said that people wouldn't accept that. My understanding is if you made tests free, that you gave them free availability of tests that they could test themselves as often as they wanted, mm -hmm. uh, uh, many people would not object to that. That's not infringing your freedom. To have your office test you is a little bit more dicey, but it's something that I think most people who are office workers would rather know that somebody in their office isn't coming to work spreading viruses around. And then with a paid home stay, I think it makes it attractive. You don't have to have everybody uh, comply. You need about 70 to 80 percent of people to comply to drive this infection way, way down. Okay, so if if offered an appointment to chair the coronavirus task force, would you accept? <laughs> I don't know if with this president I would accept. It's a recipe for early death from heart attack. <laughs> well, I I mean, the results are. I mean, the results I, not I completely would, in yet. There could be a change in leadership. There could be, and in, in that case, I'd be. Yeah, if if asked, of course, I'd be happy to serve. But let me say, it's it's a daunting it's a daunting uh, challenge. Uh, for the people I've worked very closely with, uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield. There's even a book uh, that attacks Dr. Redfield and I called The Myth of Heterosexual AIDS. We are the principal arch-villains of that book by suggesting that HIV-AIDS may become a heterosexually transmitted disease. Uh, so we've been through the trenches yeah. uh, a number of times. But uh, I have great admiration for both of those uh, gentlemen operating in the environment that they do. Dr. William Hazeltine is a contributor at Forbes. He was a professor at the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. And uh, I appreciate uh, this discussion very much. It's been eye-opening. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for your interest. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast and you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. 